0: Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again today as we always do and we begin to pray and to study. We ask that you help us to open our minds and our hearts to really hear what it is you have to say to us through Scripture. And in particular, try to understand how Paul's letters particularly Romans, is not only addressed to the people of his time, but addressed to people of all time, and that is just as important to us today as it was 2,000 years ago. So give us the strength and the courage to really examine our own minds, our hearts, our conscience, to see how we stack up. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things In Jesus' name. Today we're going to do something that's, uh, I think, a little interesting. And examine what Paul is saying. Excuse me. Yes, I thought so too. Why don't we open these doors a little bit here. Today we're going to be talking about how these letters affected the Jewish people at the time. As you can well understand, I'm sure, these letters certainly weren't uh, very complimentary or friendly to the Jewish people. But that's not what Paul's intention was. In fact, as he starts out, he's saying how proud he was to be a Jew and how fortunate it was that he was able then to see both sides, the Jewish side and now the Christian side and that it was a great gift to him and he even goes to the extreme of saying that he would give his life uh, in a form of damnation really if it would wake up the Jewish people to see the same things. So, what I'm really trying to have you see is, and this is a subject that we kind of started out with uh, eight weeks ago, but haven't really talked a great deal about it, how the separation of Christianity from Judaism came about. And Why? And then after you've, we've discussed that, and I do welcome your questions, then I'm going to dash all of that by telling you something else. But we'll hold that off, uh, until later. Okay? Let's go through some of the wording here in chapters 9, 10 and 11 because it is the words in this case that are important to what Paul is saying and to the subject matter of, the, uh, of this particular lecture. It says, I speak the truth in Christ. In Christ is very important here. I do not lie. My conscience joins with the Holy Spirit in bearing me witness that I have great sorrow and constant anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers. My kin according to the flesh. They are Israelites. Theirs is the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, And the promises. Theirs were the patriarchs. And from them, according to the flesh, is the Messiah. God, who is over all, be blessed forever. In other words, God the Father worked with the Jewish people for 2,000 years. He gave them the original covenant starting way back with Abraham, and then renewed it down through the 2,000 years with various people, particularly David, Solomon, uh, the patriarchs, the prophets, etc. All of these were to guide the Jewish people into fulfilling what God asked of them. And that was primarily to form a community a nation, that would be an example to everyone else. Living in harmony, living uh, in accordance with the Ten Commandments, in primarily loving God and loving their neighbor. And as a result, if they accomplish that with God's help, then they would be a light to the other nations. A light to the nations. The word nations, when translated back uh, through the English, the Latin, the Greek, back to the Hebrew and the Aramaic, comes out Gentile. So wherever you see in the Old Testament the word nations, <clears throat> it means Gentile. And wherever you see the word Gentile, it means all of the other nations or the people who were not Jews. So it's one or the other. Unfortunately, Paul and many of the other writers in the New Testament use the words interchangeably, and you sometimes get a little confused. But the whole idea of God's will, in this case, was to make the Jewish people an example for everyone else. Unfortunately, as we know, they didn't follow that. And let's go on here. But it is not that the word of God has failed, for not all who are of Israel are Israelis or true Jews, nor are they all children of Abraham, because they are descendants. But, and of course he's referring here to Ishmael and the descendants of Ishmael, who are... uh, to be the Arab people Um, not the Muslim people but the Arab people okay Uh, but it is through Isaac that descendants shall bear your name and this means that it is not the children of the flesh that is Hagar and Ishmael who are the children of God but the children of the promise and that is the children of Isaac who are counted as the descendants. For this is the wording of the promise. Uh, and he's going back to the three visitors that came uh, to the tent of Abraham way back, who said, about this time uh, next year, I shall return and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but also when Rebecca, and that's Isaac's wife, had conceived children by one husband, our father Isaac, before they had yet been born, that is, that is Jacob and Esau, before they had yet been born, had done anything, good or bad, in order that God's elective plan might continue, not by works, but by his call, she was told, and this is Rebecca was told, That the older, Esau, shall serve the younger, Jacob. I'm adding these words in here so that you can better understand what's going on. (laughs) For it is written, I loved Jacob, but hated Esau. Now, why did he hate Esau? Anybody know? I'm sorry? No, no, no. No, he's talking about real people here in this case. Yeah. He gave up his birthright. That's right. Uh, the story is, and this goes way back to the book of Genesis, that uh, Esau and Isaac were twins. Uh, but in the case of Jewish culture, wherever the mother was expected to bear twins, uh, they always had like a bracelet or a ribbon or something to identify who came out first because that was the firstborn. And Esau came first and Isaac afterward. All right. And by right then, Esau was the firstborn and therefore had the right to claim everything. But one day as they were getting older, uh, Esau had been out tending flocks or something, I don't remember that that part of the detail, and was very hungry, he came into the house or the home or wherever, and Isaac was fixing himself a meal. And foolish Esau said he would give his entire birthright, and I think he added some other things, uh, if Isaac would give him that meal because he was famished. Now, of course, that might sound a little foolish to us and insignificant, but in Jewish culture, giving up your birthright uh, is a major, major event and a sin against God and his own father. Okay. So... Obviously, this was a little conniving, we think, uh, by Rebecca, or at least it says uh, so later. Uh, but nevertheless, that's what happened. Okay, so I'm adding all of these little details here so that you can better understand what we're getting at here. And then <clears throat> Paul is going on to say, What then are we to say? Is there injustice on the part of God? Of course not. For it says to Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will, and I will take pity on whom I will. So it depends not upon a person's will or exertion, but upon God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, This is why I have raised you up, to show my power through you, that my name may be proclaimed throughout the earth. Now, what has that got to do with it? It is referring to how God will often call upon people. I don't like to use the word "will use" people because that sounds um, that has a different connotation. But remember, God has used people throughout uh, history. To be a key uh, play a key uh, role or key part in God's plan of salvation. We learn this uh, here in our study of Isaiah, here where Cyrus the Great, the Persian, was used in a way to affect the release of the Jewish Israelites from Babylon, and he was looked upon as somebody. Uh, who was extremely favored by God and often called a Messiah, which, of course, was incorrect. But nevertheless, that is the great esteem that he was looked upon. And Paul is using Pharaoh here as another way of uh, showing how God uses certain people uh, for key roles to affect his plan of salvation, meaning that his plan is going to be uh, fulfilled one way or the other. And if we don't do our part, he's going to still get it done, but we won't get the credit. <clears throat> Consequently, he has mercy upon whom he wills and hardens whom he wills. And you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can oppose his will? But who indeed are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Will what is made say to its maker, Why have you created me? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make out uh, of the same lump one vessel for a noble purpose and another for an ignoble purpose that comes from the uh, prophet uh, Jeremiah? What if God, uh, wishing to show His wrath and make known His power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath made for destruction? This was to make known the riches of His glory to the vessels of mercy which He has prepared previously for glory, namely us, whom He has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. In other words, out of all of the history of the 2,000 years, God is calling certain people to be Christians, to follow his will uh, will in um, extending the whole idea of the birth, death, and uh, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And all of the benefits that come from it. I know it's a little. uh, Difficult sometimes. To follow Paul's wordings. But then again. You know that's the way it is. And we have to kind of work with it. Going on it says. As indeed he says in Hosea. Those who were not my people. I will call my people. In other words he's referring to the Gentiles again. And her who is not beloved. I will call beloved. In other words, he's talking about Hagar. And in the very place where it uh, was said to them, you are not my people, there shall be, they shall be called children of the living God. In other words, he is now calling everyone to be part of his plan. Remember, the Jewish people were a small community. When God set up this magnificent plan of his salvation, uh, beginning with Abraham, he had to start with a small group of people. In fact, he he started with Abraham and his wife and their two children, Ishmael and Isaac, and went from there. And over 2,000 years, it grew into a rather large nation. right? And he nurtured it all along. They went haywire in many places, as we know from our study of Isaiah. The Babylonian captivity was probably the worst part of Jewish history. Um, But in a way, it was a good part because it was a learning curve. And during that 50 years in Babylon, the Jewish people formed the what we would call today the synagogue program of having small Jewish uh, houses of study and prayer, which still exists today. And they resolved, through their study of the book of Deuteronomy, to never again get into the same problem of idolatry and apostasy that got them there in the first place so when they came back their resolve was hardened in their minds and their hearts and they took the law to extremes and of course went from one extreme of ignoring God altogether to living the law to the letter of the law which in turn Ignored God altogether on the other side. And yet, it's interesting, if you read not only Jewish history, but if you read Jewish scripture, the Old Testament, it is their writings that point this out. Their writings condemn themselves. Uh, I refer to uh, Psalm 81 because it is short and yet right to the point. It gets right to the point of how the Jewish people ignored God. And so he left them kind of shift for themselves, you might say, as we would today. Okay. Let's go on. <clears throat> And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, through the number of the Israelites, I'm sorry, though the number of the Israelites were like the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. For decisively and quickly will the Lord execute sentence upon the earth. And as Isaiah predicted, unless the Lord of hosts had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom and have been made like Gomorrah. In other words, no more. But God, again, needed the Jewish people to continue. And, of course, the Babylonian captivity took place in the 6th century BC. So for another 500 years, roughly, uh, he needed those people to continue the plan of salvation that he had implemented until it came to its climax with the birth of Jesus Christ. What shall I say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have achieved it. That is righteousness that comes from faith. But that Israel who pursued the law of righteousness did not attain it. And why not? Because they did it not by faith, but as it could be done by works. right. You should underline that part because that is a very key element to why the Jewish people would not and could not accept Jesus Christ. Because they were so embedded in looking to the law and the words of the law that they totally ignored Christ or God himself who stood before them in the person of Jesus Christ. It says, They stumbled over the stone that causes stumbling. For it is written, I am laying a stone in Zion that will make people stumble and a rock that will make them fall and whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. It couldn't be any clearer than that. Jesus has often been referred to as the stumbling rock for the Jewish people. But sometimes, you know, for any of you who have accidentally stumbled over a rock or anything else and fallen you don't forget it do you you remember it particularly if you get banged on the head or break a bone or whatever it's something that you just never forget Um, and yet these people have totally ignored this particular gift in a way that God has given them Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God on their behalf is for salvation. I testify with regard to them that they have zeal for God, but it is not discerning. It is, and that's another key point here, their whole direction. That is, the Jewish people's entire direction was self-decided. They did not look to God for guidance and direction. They did not look to God to fulfill his will in all of this. They took it upon themselves to make their, their own decisions. In other words, they're saying, yes, God, we love you and we'll do whatever you want but we'll do it our way. That is a key word. Discerning. And it should be a key word for us today. Are we today discerning what God is asking of us? Not as the church. Because the church is a discerning organ. But as individuals, we have to be concerned with are we looking to the will of God to fulfill what he wants of us personally, bless you. For in their unawareness of the righteousness that comes from God and their attempt to establish their own righteousness, They did not submit to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for the justification of everyone who has faith. An important statement. For Christ Jesus is the end of the law. That is the end result and the purpose of the law for the justification And eventually the sanctification for everyone who has faith. Everyone in this case means Jew and Gentile. Jew and everyone else alike. But it has to be done through Christ. Moses writes about the righteousness that comes from the law. Now remember, Moses did not write all the 613 Jewish laws. Many Jewish people will say that he did and many Protestant people still believe that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. That is totally untrue and can be proven as such. I won't go into the proving part of it, but it can be. Uh, But Moses was the most influential person in the Old Testament and much of what is written Is based on not only his words and his teachings, but on the extraction of the meaning of those. But they came over a period, long period of time. Moses writes about the righteousness that comes from the law. The one who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes from faith says, do not say in your heart, who will go up to heaven, and that is to bring Christ down, or who will go down into the abyss, and that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we preach. For if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, that's a very powerful statement. But you've got to be careful. Many people will take that out of context and say, all I have to do is to believe in Jesus Christ and I will be saved. No way. Because if you read all of this, What is he talking about? He's talking about God's will. And if we are following God's will, then there are certain things that we have to do, namely, love your neighbor. Loving God seems to be easy. But what does that mean in the long term? Loving God means doing all the things that he has asked of us. Not only through the church but in a personal way. And that is the one thing the Jewish people do not have. And that is a personal relationship with God. And therefore they look to making all of their own decisions based on their own ideas and understanding Of what they feel. God might be pleased with. And that isn't sufficient. So be careful when you hear that. Okay. The word is near you. That is Christ Jesus is near you. In your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we preach. For if you confess with your mouth. That Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is true as far as it goes. But when you say, believe in your heart um, that Jesus is Lord uh, and God raised him from the dead, it implies that you are going to follow Christ and do what he's asked of you. It doesn't mean just that you believed and then that's it. Yes, June? No. The best way to answer that is show me by your words. You well, know? there's a song in the, in the movie or the play, My Fair Lady, that says, don't tell me how much you love me, show me. Okay. Uh, it's a cute little song. Uh, I couldn't sing it as fast as uh, uh, Julie Andrews did, but uh, I don't think anybody can. But nevertheless, it's a, it's a cute little song. But the implication is, saying that you love a person, or saying that you love God, is somewhat meaningless if you don't follow it up with how you act towards that person. Or how you fulfill what God has asked of you. If you totally ignore the person, then saying that you love him or her is meaningless. Right. And same with God. If you say, oh Lord, I love you, you know, in fact, Christ himself says, just saying, Lord, Lord, is not going to get you into heaven. It is fulfilling what you have been asked to do. So, again, that goes back to discernment. If we are not discerning or asking God what he wants of us and trying our very best with the help of his grace and the Holy Spirit to fulfill that, then that is not really showing that we truly love him. No one who believes in him will be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and and Greek the same Lord is Lord of all enriching all who call upon him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved in this case calling on the name of the Lord means again that you want to follow whatever he is asking and do things according to what he has proclaimed But how can they call on him. Who they have not believed. And how can they believe in him. Who they have not heard. And he's speaking now of the Jewish people. And how can they hear. Without somebody to preach. And how can people preach. Unless they are sent. Because the Jewish people have. Ostracized and expelled all of the converted Jewish people who are now part of the Christians from the synagogues. This is when the persecutions started. Really early in the time period after Christ's ascension and before these letters were written, the persecutions began with sort of a, a twofold thing. The Christian, or the Jewish converts, would start bringing some of their new Christian, Gentile friends into the synagogue, which was a, a major, major faux pas there. Okay. And then, after that got to be a prominent thing, uh, they were all then expelled from the synagogues. So that created a problem. And then, from that, went into persecution. So, the Jewish people were the ones who really began the major persecution of the Christians. It wasn't the Romans. The Romans came in later to try to quell the the, the problem and only made things worse. But I ask you, did not Israel understand? Israel, in this case, is referring to the man, Jacob. First, Moses says... I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation but a senseless nation I will make you angry. In other words he is Moses is really trying to get the people and of course this goes back 1500 years to the time of Moses when he saw that God really wanted to make them a, a really a shining community. And unfortunately, that never happened. When Isaiah speaks boldly and says, I was found by those who were not seeking me, I uh, revealed myself to those who were not asking for me. But regarding Israel, he says, All day long, I stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contentious people. Let's go, let me take... A moment here. And I've read this to you before. But. um, This is Psalm 81. It is not very long. It starts out. In a beautiful way. Trying to get the people to see. It says. Sing joyfully to God our strength. Shout in triumph to God. To the God of Jacob. Take. Up a melody, sound the trimble, the sweet sounding harp and the lyre. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon, and that was the Jewish holiday, on our solemn feast. For this is a law in Israel, an edict of the God of Jacob, who made a decree for Joseph when he came out of the land of Egypt. I hear a new oracle. I believe their shoulders there. I relieved their shoulders of the burden. Their hands put down the basket. In distress I called and I rescued you. On I spoke to you in thunder. At the waters of Mirabai I tested you and said, Listen, my people, I give you warning. If only you would obey me, Israel. Again, Israelite people. There must be no foreign god among you. You you must not worship an alien God, which they were doing. I, the Lord, am your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my words. And Israel did not obey me. And so I gave them over to hardness of heart. They followed their own designs. But even now, if my people would listen, if Israel would walk in my path. In a moment I would subdue their foes. Against their enemies unleash my hand. And those who hate the Lord would tremble. Their doom seal forever. But Israel I would feed with the finest wheat. And satisfy them with honey from the rock. That's sad in a way isn't it? Because Again. This was written two or three hundred years before Christ. So, you know, for twelve hundred years roughly, he has dealt with them in many different ways, and still they don't open their minds and heart. But we have to learn from the same things that we don't do the same things. Okay. Chapter eleven is kind of interesting in a way. Um, The remnant, the word remnant is sacred in Jewish culture because it means that God, even though he chastised many people, he always brought a remnant or a small number of people back to where he wanted them to be and that was in Jerusalem. Okay. That didn't happen in the 7th and 8th century when the Assyrians uh, overran the northern kingdom of Israel. and They just wiped it up and took a lot of the Jewish people off to Syria as slaves, never to be seen again. But that didn't happen in the southern kingdom of Israel, I mean of Judah, who were then carted off to Babylon in the 6th century. He always promised there would be a small number of those people returning. They were there for approximately 50 years. And it's interesting that, of course, they had children while they were there who grew up and never really knew uh, Jerusalem or that area of Israel. And so a lot of them didn't come back uh, of their own free will. They stayed in Babylon. Uh, And of course, there was a lot of deaths. uh, So some of the older people didn't come back. But nevertheless, there was a small remnant of people to come back and sort of restart the Jewish faith in Jerusalem. And that's kind of what he's referring to here. I ask them, has God rejected his people? Of course not. For I am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people uh, whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, you have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is God's response to him? I have left for myself 7,000 men who have not knelt to Baal, that is the pagan god. So, also at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace, But if by grace it is no longer because of works. Important statement there by Elijah. If by grace that they are chosen, it is not because of their works, but because of their faith. What then? What Israel was seeking, it did not attain. But the elect attained it. The rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of deep sleep, eyes that should not see, and ears that should not hear, down to this very day. In other words, for those people who would not open their mind and their heart to God, God then only made it more so. If they were not going to do it, then God made it such that they could not do it but for those who had turned to God for discernment. And that's what he's referring to, his 5,000 men. Um, That was a lot, I think, compared to the number of people that were carted off to Babylon. We don't have any idea of numbers, but it was significant. So that was the small remnant that was brought back not because of their works, but because of their faith. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes grow dim so that they may not see and keep their backs bent forever. Again, the stubborn people, let their uh, worldly, interests, food in this case, that's what is referring to their table. Uh, and of course their backs are turned to God. Hence I ask, did they stumble so as to fall? Of course not. But through their transgression, salvation has now come to the Gentiles so as to make them jealous, that is to make the Jews jealous, because God now has opened the door of the so-called chosen people to include anyone who wanted to come in under the uh, rule of faith. Not if their transgression is enriched for the world, And if their diminished number is enriched for the Gentiles, how much more their full number? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then, as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I glory in my ministry in order to make my race jealous. Thus save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world. What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? That's a little difficult, but what it means here, and this is actually uh, in connection with a prophecy made elsewhere, that if the small number of people who are converted then or today from Judaism to Christianity makes their families terribly upset. Hopefully it will get them to start thinking about why and what is the advantage of Christianity over Judaism. We're going to get that, into that in a few minutes here. Let let me go on to 17 here. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, a wild olive, shoot, remember he's talking to the Gentiles now, a wild uh, olive shoot were grafted in their place and have come to share in the rich root of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. If you do boast, consider that you do not support, consider that You do not support the root. The root supports you. In other words, Judaism was the support base. And those Gentiles who have come in to Christianity now are seeking the benefits from the root, which was Judaism, that is now the base for Christianity. Indeed, you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And that is so. They were broken off because of unbelief. But you are there because of faith. So, do not become haughty, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, that is the Jewish people, perhaps he will not spare you either. See then, The kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who fell. But God's kindness to you. Provided you remain in his kindness. Otherwise you will be cut off also. And they also. If they do not remain in unbelief. Will be grafted in. In other words those Jewish people. Who wake up and accept Christ will be grafted in. And God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated one, how much more will they who belong to it by nature be grafted back into their own olive tree? So Christianity now has become the olive tree in this Example. I do not uh, want you to be unaware of this mystery. um, So that you may not become wise. In your own estimation. A hardening has come upon Israel in part. Until the full number of the Gentiles comes in. And thus all Israel will be saved. As it is written. The delivery will come out of Zion. And he will turn away godlessness from Jacob and this is my covenant with them when I take up their sins in respect to the gospel they are enemies on your account but in respect to election that is the choice of coming into uh, the Christian church they are beloved because of the patriarchs for the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. The gifts he has given to the Jewish people and have been adopted by the Christians. And that is, you know, what we just said, that the Jewish faith, the Old Testament, is the root of Christianity. And therefore we cannot criticize we can only look upon it as a gift and then take it from there and feel sad for those people who have uh, not actually seen the value of Christianity, that is, the Jewish people. All right. I want to get into a little exercise in a few minutes here. Um, we're going to do some board work. Just as you once disobeyed God, but but have now received mercy because of their disobedience. You in this case, the Gentiles, their disobedience are referring to the Jews. So that they have now disobeyed in order that by virtue of the mercy shown to you, they too may now receive mercy. And unfortunately, that only made things worse. In other words, when the Jewish people saw that God was favoring the Gentiles, uh, it only made them more hardened uh, in their waywardness. For God delivered all to disobedience, that he might have mercy upon all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How inscrutable are his judgments and how unsearchable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him anything that he might be repaid? That comes from Psalm 139. For from him and through him and for him all things are. To him be glory forever. Amen. Yes, ma'am. What is the role of the Catholic Church today the Well, there's been a great deal of dialogue. John Paul II did a number of trips to Israel, to Jerusalem, and met with a lot of the uh, principal rabbis there. In trying to get at least a dialogue going. And there is a lot of that. Also, in the Second Vatican Council, there was a lot of effort made to uh, put down any any anti-Semitism that was very prominent before Vatican II. You know, you've probably heard the term Christ Christ. Killers and yeah. that kind of thing. Uh, even many of the best Christians would say that, or Catholics would say that. Uh, that has somewhat disappeared now. And Catholics are actually forbidden to say that. We've taken some of the language from our Lenten and Easter... Vigil ceremonies and changed it to uh, reflect a dialogue or a compassion for the Jewish people rather than criticism. So there's a number of things that we're trying to do, but we're limited. We're limited really by God's will. And, you know, it is they, the Jewish people, that have to come to us. That is the church. Rather than the church bending to them. Uh, the door is open. We can only move so far. It's declining. Yes. Uh, Rita just asked if the Jewish uh, population is growing or declining. And from what I understand, it is declining. Uh, because the rules of Judaism have been relaxed because it has splintered into three major factions, you know, the Orthodox, the Reform, and the Conservative. And uh, the Reform group now are permitting intermarriage, which the Orthodox still forbid, and uh, the Conservative, well, you know, wishy-washy there. Uh, It's interesting that Christianity now says there's roughly two and a quarter billion Christians of various denominations throughout the world, whereas Judaism, there are not quite a quarter of a million. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, 250 million. Yeah. It is not religion overall. I'm sorry? Yes. Yes, yes. Unfortunately, yes. You've put it. Uh, you've asked an important pointed question. Faith and religion is declining overall because of the secular dominance, you might say, uh, of what is going on in technology, uh, in sports, in uh Entertainment, etc. The whole idea is uh, living for today, and the to heck with tomorrow. Um, and that's terribly, terribly unfortunate. And we've got to guard against that. Uh, you might not be able to change the world, but you can change your own thoughts and attitudes. Yes, ma'am. Uh, I hope so. Uh, just look at the best-seller book list of nonfiction um, there is well you had the O'Reilly book which I didn't think much of calling killing Jesus but it might uh, spark some people to want to dig further into uh, what O'Reilly has to say and look at uh, the more important things uh, there is another book that is uh, out called uh, Jesus on Trial by David Limbaugh. That's Rush Limbaugh's brother. Be careful. Um, but that one is excellent. I've read that one. And even though it is written from a Protestant fundamentalist viewpoint, I highly recommend it. I brought it in here a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's very, very well done. Not too uh, heavy. Uh, there is another book by Matthew Kelly called Rediscovering Catholicism, which I think is excellent. Um, and don't go out and buy it because I might surprise you uh, later. But, uh, but there, uh, you're right. There is a number of things that are drawing our attention uh, back to Christianity and the Catholicism in particular. And so, I think the statement, wherever sin abounds, grace abounds even more, is very true. The Holy Spirit is working overtime trying to offset or counteract uh, the trend towards the way for Christianity. All right. Um, I want to divert a little bit and go back... Uh, to talk about some of this and put it into a, hopefully a context that I hope you will understand and then I'm going to dash all of your hopes uh, <laughs> a- after you understand it. Uh, God's plan of salvation. It was in his mind, the mind of God, even before creation. Being a God who knows everything and yet still wanted to create mankind, to share his love, to share his being with them, must have known that mankind was going to sin. That's like any wise parents when they get married and have children, of course nowadays they have the children first, and you know, uh, we're not talking about that. Uh, but parents who do have children know that their children, uh, are eventually going to hurt them at times, but that doesn't stop them from wanting to have children and doing, you know, being parents. Uh, God was the same way. So he knew that mankind was going to sin. And so even right up in front, in the book of Genesis, where God asks Adam, why did you eat the apple from the tree? I should have said, why did you eat the fruit from the tree? The word apple is not in the Bible. Okay. Uh, and of course... Uh, Adam, being the wise man, the macho man that he was, blames it on his wife. You know, but in essence, you know, the devil made me do it. All right. So God confronts the serpent. Now, whether it was a serpent or a giraffe or rhinoceros or what difference does it make? You know, the serpent is was a symbol of the pagan gods that existed in Egypt at the time that this was supposed to have taken place. Okay? So, that's where they got the word serpent. Whether it was or not, what difference does it make? But the when, the confrontation is very important when you read Genesis. Okay? God condemns the serpent and says that a woman's offspring will crush his head. The woman, of course, is referring to Mary. The offspring is, according, referring to Jesus. So we know that this whole idea of the plan of salvation was in the mind of God before creation. And then, God needed a beginning and the beginning of his implementation of this plan of salvation to bring mankind back to him. Remember, God is divine. And throughout the Bible, there are several uh, references to the phrase, be holy for I am holy. And that is used both in the Old Testament as well as two or three places in the New Testament. If you change one little word in there, I think it is a clear meaning of, or a clear understanding of what the meaning is of that statement. It is, be holy because I am holy. Alright? The fact that God the Father is divinely holy and cannot have sinful mankind living with Him in heaven requires that there be a way to uh, resolve the breach that was caused by mankind's sin. And that breach existed from the time of Adam and Eve and is represented by Adam and Eve being cast out of Eden. Eden was like heaven where Adam and Eve could walk and talk and eat and call upon God at their will because they were perfect. That was the way they were made. But once they sinned, they could not have that privilege and therefore were cast out of Eden. That is the symbolic meaning of that casting out, you might say. And yet the Holy Spirit was guiding them all along. That is evidenced by the fact that God himself uh, made clothes for Adam and Eve once they were put out of Eden. These are all symbolic gestures and metaphors throughout that whole story. They all have sort of double meanings. Okay. Um, then, as time went on, mankind increased in sin. You have the Cain and Abel story. You have the Tower of Babel story. You have the Noah and the Ark story. All of those are fables or legends that were put in there to indicate that sin uh, increased exponentially you might say after Adam and Eve left Eden and was left on their own. The whole idea of being left on their own And God not watching over them was indicated by the sin of all of these people increasing. And so God needed a way to bring those people back to him and prepare a way for a final uh, resolution of the sins and an offering that was worthy of a divine God. But none of these people on earth were worthy of any of that and had nothing that was equal or worth offering to God uh, sufficient to resolve all of the sins of mankind. And so God had to work out something that would be worthy of him and who is worthy of God? Nothing but God himself. Okay. So you know the story of the Old Testament, how God started with Abraham and then with the patriarchs, that is, Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's family and the time in Egypt. And then they were brought back out of Egypt through Moses. And then they had the judges uh, and then the patriarch, I mean, the prophets uh, and the kings and so forth but things just kept getting worse and worse and worse. Um, And the Jewish people were brought in, as I said earlier, to be a model community, a model society that would reflect their love for each other out to the rest of the nations. What do the Jewish people do? They closed themselves in and made them an exclusive community and weren't allowed to go out and touch The other nations. And God was very displeased with that. So part of his plan of salvation. Was to bring in somebody new. And different. And restart this idea. Of a shining nation. And so with the birth of Christ. God brought to the people somebody now who was worth a divine offering. God himself or part of God himself. Okay? And Jesus, rather than being a knight in shining armor and coming on a white horse or you know, in silver and a big entourage, came as a little baby. In order to be part of us be part of mankind. So he took upon himself the role of a human being and experienced all the pains and sufferings of humanity with the exception of sin. He then represented all of mankind and took upon himself their sins our sins, those now and in the future and took them to the cross. It was something that the Jewish people had done in the past and they would continue to do it. They killed all of the prophets because they didn't like what the prophets said. God tried to get the prophets to counteract the apostasy and the degradation that was going on particularly during the time of the Jewish monarchy and they were all murdered because they didn't want to hear what the prophets had to say even though they recognized the prophets as holy men and their minds were made up rather than discerning what God wanted them they told God what they were going to do and what they weren't going to do And God was not pleased. So, once Christ came and set the stage for a new beginning and then turned it over to other human beings, he then left us with a legacy, you might say, that is based solely on love and has asked us to do the same thing that we love each other and reflect that love out to our neighbors. And by doing so, we will then in turn love God. And that is sufficient to fulfill all of the laws that the Jewish people were trying to fill totally on their own. And so, Christ, while he was here, instituted the Christian church, the Catholic church, with Peter as the head of the apostles. And as time grew and the number of people expanded, uh, the apostles were then um, added to and they became the bishops of the church with the head one being the pope. And that has gone on down through 2,000 years since then. But the whole idea is the church has gone out of its way to try to understand the mind and the heart of God so that it didn't repeat the mistakes and the problems of the Jewish people. Now, it hasn't always been faithful to, to keeping the mind and the heart of God, uh, we will admit. But in the last two or three hundred years, uh, we have really strived to write the course. Along the way, we have a number of people who decided that they liked the idea of Christianity, but they didn't want to be uh, saddled with the dictates from Rome. And therefore, they would break off but isn't that really what the Jewish people did? Um, So we have a number of people breaking off, and then they're not agreeing with each other, so then they break into several parts. So we have hundreds, or you might say thousands, of various Christian churches who don't agree with each other. And, of course, they came that way, because they didn't agree with Rome. And yet Rome has existed for 2,000 years and will continue to exist as head of the church until the end of time. So it's important that we, as Christians and as Catholics, support our church as strongly as we can. And when we see something wrong, try to correct it rather than just criticize. We have an obligation. And that obligation is to reflect the love that God has given to each of us individually to others. And in doing so, we hope to set other people on fire with love as well. And therefore, it should... Be contagious, but it isn't. It is not working that way, and why? It is because many people have separated the church from God, and that's unfortunate because you can't. We are the body of Christ, and you got to take that literally. We are the hands and the feet and the mouth of Christ. And if we have a potty mouth, you know, that is an abomination against who we are supposed to be representing. If we sit still and see things going wrong around us and don't do something about it or at least report it, then we are part of the problem rather than the solution. So we have an obligation as Catholics to do a lot more than we are doing. And the whole idea of this course is really to get people to see that. Just reading Paul's letters and trying to figure out the difficult words and what they mean and add little things in between like I did this morning uh, is not sufficient. Paul didn't write just for the people of his time. He obviously wrote this letter as being inspired by God to apply to all mankind down throughout history and into the future. And therefore, we've got to take it seriously. So it's important for each of us to try to understand what is our role. What is God asking of us as individuals? And are we fulfilling that? And God is always going to say, well, you haven't done a very good job of it uh, in the past, but I'll be with you. I'll help you. I'll give you the graces to do better in the future. If you cooperate and do it with him. Okay? So you are not alone. We are not on this earth alone. God is always there to help us. That's the biggest problem with the Jewish people today. They do not have a personal relationship with Christ or with God himself. They've always put him up on the mountaintop and in one part of uh, the book of Exodus, I forget just where, uh, but they make a real clear statement to Moses they don't want to see that. They don't want to talk to him. You be the intercessor. In other words, the people are saying that to Moses. Uh, they don't want to hear that. Uh, because remember, God always came down in thunder and lightning and smoke and all of that. And that's where we get this idea that God is always up there. Uh, and the people always knew that heaven was up there. But for centuries... The idea of mankind returning to heaven and returning to the Father was not part of anybody's thoughts or culture. So, it's important that we kind of spend time and I would say as we are getting close to Advent, uh, to think about how we can come closer to God on a personal basis. Not just part of the church, but on a one-to-one basis. And I think you will find that once you have done that and continue to do it, remember, it's not a one-time thing, but once you have done it and continue to do it, you'll find a great deal of peace within your own heart. And that comes to Well, I was saying earlier, the idea of Judaism and Christianity really is not as important as what is God's will. For those of you who were at mass this morning, the whole idea of the gospel reading, even though it might have been a little clouded, the whole idea was what is God's will for you. And that is what you should really be spending your prayer time on trying to find out. Judaism or Christianity, the separation, etc., you can see from these three chapters of Romans why the Jewish people have turned against Christianity. And I would too if I were a strict Jew who didn't think beyond the law. I wouldn't like what Paul was saying, but that's not important. What's important is now we are on the other side. We have to understand what Paul means, but we have to take it upon ourselves uh, as a one-on-one project. It means universal. It's, a, it's from the Greek. Or universal, yeah. And because for 1,500 years, from the time of Christ until the Reformation, anyone who was Christian was Catholic. So it was the universal church. It was the Reformation in the 15th and 16th century that created the the, the diversion that we have today. All right? Again... Because people wanted to take things into their own hands and do things their way, rather than discern what God wanted them, of them. Okay, it's a little past time. Uh, I'd like to go on, but we do have to we do have to uh, to leave. All right. Let's end with a prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time together. It's been interesting, and I hope everyone has enjoyed. And earned uh, learned a little bit about uh, what is required of them as Catholics. So we ask your blessing on our efforts as we try to strive to find that. Give us the grace and the strength really to open our minds and hearts to what it is that you want of us. So we thank you for this time. Thank you. <clears throat> and praise you in all things in Jesus' name.